Hello and welcome to Business Lines Pulse podcast that tunes into all things health and pharmaceuticals. I'm Jyoti Datta and have been writing on the subject for over two decades, including in Business Lines health page Pulse. Our guest today is Chandrakant Lehria, who is a public policy and health systems expert and, more recently, a co-author of the book Till We Win, India's Fight Against the COVID-19 Pandemic. Thank you, Doctor, for joining us. Hi, Jyoti Ji. Dr. Lehria has recently been striking a contrarian note on two key issues that have been occupying public mind space. The third wave and whether indeed it is going to affect more children and the classification of black fungus. So let's get straight into it. Doctor, you have quite emphatically um, said that the third wave will not affect children more. And the interpretation of what was seen in Ahmednagar, Maharashtra, was erroneous. Why did you say that? So there had not been any scientific or epidemiological evidence from any part of the world that any subsequent wave affects children. We always know through the CEDO survey that children have always been infected in a very similar proportion to what the adult population had been infected. This had been found in the nationwide serial surveys, but also statewide serial survey wherever the children were included in those serial surveys. Then globally also we know that children have been infected in proportion to other population, uh, but they do not develop severe disease. What we knew earlier and even now that uh, the proportion of children or 0 to 18 year population and the total number of cases is always small. What we need to remember that uh, 0 to 18 years population in India constitute around 35 to 40 percent of total population. But the of the total cases which are moderate to severe cases uh, of COVID-19 in India, their contribution or share has been around 8 to 11 percent. So against of 35 to 40 percent population, only 10 percent population sh- share is from the children. So that, that number we always knew. Also, we know one more scientific fact and which uh, results that children do get infected, but they do not develop uh, severe, moderate to severe disease. And that is SARS-CoV-2 virus infect or latches upon the particular receptors in the lungs. And that receptor is called ACE2. We know scientifically that that receptor is underdeveloped in the children. And that's why even when children do get infected, they do not develop severe disease. And finally, while a month ago, there was a lot of talk and discussion that children would be disproportionately affected. Very recently, two days ago, government of India released uh, data on uh, first wave and second wave about the hospitalized patients where they have compared and looked at uh, age-wide distribution and share of the different age groups in a first wave and second wave. And what they have found uh, that the proportion, proportionate share of uh, different age groups, especially children in the first uh, wave or second wave have remained unchanged. In fact, the share of different age groups has re- uh, across the age, age groups has remained unchanged, which essentially means that while in the absolute number, more number of people have been affected because this wave was more severe, but in terms of proportion, this has not affected children or any group disproportionately, and there is no reason to believe that it could affect in third wave also. Here, I also want to bring another part, which is that there is a lot of discussion on new emerging variants or variants of concern, but there is no evidence that the new variants of concern would affect children either way. I also want to add, and this is the final part, 
that uh, we have seen data and one of the core argument uh, which some people made that considering in the first wave elderly were affected and second wave more of an adult population both of the notions were wrong but uh, on that uh, they extrapolated that the third wave children would be affected because adults are being vaccinated now there is a data very robust data available from united states center for disease Con control us cdc which says which is from the now on december 2020 when the us started vaccination till early june 21 when they reached really high vaccination coverage and it has found that there has not been any change in uh, proportion or severity of disease in children so, so all the evidence now conclusively prove that children are not at additional risk in third or any subsequent wave right then how does one explain what happened at seventh one of the key mistake uh, which sometimes people make and especially in the newspapers and uh, other uh, experts who have not studied the disease epidemiology that they always look at the numerators however to make the correct inference we have to see both numerators and denominators we know that in Ahmednagar, there were reports of 8,000 infections in the children. But what was not reported that during the same period, there were 86,000 of the total infection in the Ahmednagar district, which essentially translates. And I learned later on the number was upgraded like 9,600 infection in the children, though media reported 8,000. So around 11% of the total infection in the district were uh, in the ch children. And this is very proportionate to the uh, what what we have seen in other parts of the country. So children were not disproportionately affected. It was just uh, one particular number was picked up. Second part, in Ahmednagar, of all the 9,600 infections which happened in month of May, which were reported till that point of time, right. uh, the number of deaths were two. So the case fatality rate of uh, case fatality rate due to this uh, particular condition was very low, 0.002%, which is far below the adults. That's one example. And also there were reports in Maharashtra in the second wave in month, two months or a particular period, 97,000 children were affected. But what was not discussed that in the, in the same period in Maharashtra, around 29 lakh uh, total cases were reported. So essentially the number of infections in that particular age group, which were 97,000, was 3.5% of the total infection. So when making inference in epidemiology, it's very crucial. It's very important that we look at what numerators and denominator and that provides the right answer so uh, that's a fallacy in the wrong interpretation if somebody who is seeing only numerator and interpret on that basis but we need to remember that even with the infection which we everybody say is similar in the children but children do not get severe disease their mortality case fatality is really low right right so i must just look at you know an article you've written where you've quoted an icmr study and you said Six percent of the hospitalizations, uh, you know, were, were children. Now, even at that number, uh, isn't that worrying in the sense? Don't you, do you need any different kind of support when you're talking of pediatric support? Well, so that is the number of infection, and that number was for till early April, mid of April. Five point eight percent of the total infection were in the children. Okay. But let's again put this in the context that in that age group. The total population is 35 to 40 percent. So in a 35 to 40 percent population, only 6 percent infection are happening. And the remaining population is 60 percent in which 94 percent infections are happening. So essentially adults are at a higher rate uh, risk of infection than the children. 
and then even with we are not uh, that much concerned about the infection in this age group because uh, on any age group we are more concerned about preventing mortality and preventing severe disease so right. even with the whatever rate of infection the when it comes to mortality total number of deaths in children in comparison of other population or as part of the overall population this number remains really very small and which is a good thing so uh, we it's unfortunate and the deaths happens uh, in a covid-19 pandemic and each of the deaths attempted should be attempted to be pre prevented but the word is the caution is that we in the in a overzealous attempt to prevent deaths in children which are already far and few we should not risk the adults which are at far higher risk 10 to 20 fold higher the estimate that uh, somebody who is 85 plus is at a, it, uh, 2000 times more risk of developing severe disease and death so uh, the approach in pandemic response is that all ages should be prevented from any uh, severe disease mortality and therefore the approach had to be preparing health system for all age groups and not digressing Uh, toward an area where we might put lot of resources and uh, it might result in deaths in different age groups so that's the thing uh, the proportion is really small which is a good thing i'm repeating so many states had gone in to uh, set up covid task forces for children and one of the reasoning was that you know it's good it's an opportunity also to take uh, and and build the uh, pediatric infrastructure in hospital so what you're saying is it needs to be even handed across uh, across all age groups i would be really happy if state governments willing to invest in the pediatric care there is a lot of uh, under provision of care from government health facilities but what is unfortunate that most of the states are procedural they set up pediatric task forces but when it comes to setting up facilities there is not that much attention so uh, if states are serious and they want to prepare then they should also prepare for adult population and prepare for pediatric or children also but don't simply make promises the approach has to be preparing health facility making commitment that in the time bound matter that how many hospital beds how many units will be prepared how many icu for children will be prepared and we need to remember it should not end up a approach to procure instrument or uh, procure expensive uh, supplies but it should be making those facilities functional so if the state is really keen they should commit to hiring recruiting additional manpower to make those facilities functional there is so much which can be done in indian states by the government to make those facilities functional we know and it is a fact which need to be recognized that much of the curative care in the second wave of pandemic happened in the private sector in the public sector in many state those facilities were not available so indian states are in urgent and dire need for strengthening health system and services for all labor, all age groups and it is good that this should be done but it should not be eye wash it should be a real action on the ground in a time bound manner in a measurable indicators and the public commitment of resources and and it's been a promise i think from successive governments to sort of increase that healthcare spending so hopefully you know this this will change the way things are looked at um doc we've seen uh, you know reports of uh, what is called multi system inflammatory syndrome of children now the reason i ask you is because there are there would be people who are tuning in who are parents and who are uh, reading all of this and not really understanding 
you know on one side there is there, somebody says there is a concern somebody else says there isn't a concern so can you just sort of um, de-jargonize that for us and tell us what exactly is mi and what do parents need to look out for multi system inflammatory syndrome of children is a known disease condition right and uh, it uh, can occur in children who had covid or it can occur in otherwise non covid uh, children otherwise uh, other children who did not have covid this multi system inflammatory syndrome of children was known even before the uh, covid 19 pandemic as it happens the pandemic uh, period has resulted in increased reporting and it has become really uh, like fascinating for media to report such cases but i have no evidence and uh, there are various experts who have reviewed the detailed data that this has re- covid-19 pandemic has resulted in excessive number of multi system inflammatory syndrome of children this is simply it has brought attention on this condition usually when uh, we know two things one even covid-19 uh, only those children who have a pre existing health condition which means if they are under treatment for one or other health condition without covid also it is only those children who may develop severe moderate to severe disease and require hospitalization usually otherwise healthy children do not require hospitalization so uh, this covid 19 has made parents alert and aware and of course any of those children be it with covid or without covid uh, may develop covid um, mis um, mics and these have been reported but in my opinion and the data which i have looked and which has many people have analyzed there is no increased risk of this syndrome either due to covid-19 it is simply uh, in some sense being reported in media and scared people uh, this is a condition which would happen otherwise there are cases reported so of course there are parents uh, who child is sick and this particular syndrome can happen uh, once uh, a child is discharged like it can happen when child is admitted in the hospital it affects uh, some of different organs and uh, depending upon that organ affected Uh, that's why it's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome. That depending upon organ symptom may de- appear, but key that uh, this can develop during hospitalization of both COVID and non-COVID cases, and even after discharge from the hospital. I would not be somebody who will scare the parents, but the key that if somebody child is sick uh, right. during this period and if they need to require care, they might be aware uh, about the symptoms and uh, signs which they can consult a provider, but don't. panic don't uh, just think that uh, this is something which will happen this has always been happening and uh, very few child children unlike uh, rarely are likely to be affected by this one covid does not increase the risk of this syndrome right so is there something that you may suggest to parents to watch out for and also when we talk of children here what is the age group that we are talking about in particular because uh, we talk of child vaccine but in fact we are also talking about a vaccine for adults in the 10 to 17 age group you know then there's the 0 to 6 age group so when we say children here we are talking about age group so in uh, medical science anybody who is younger than 18 years it can be considered pediatric age group or uh, so the broader con- context is children but sometimes this is also qualified further qualified by 0 to 10 and 11 to 18 uh, Uh, so that's a broader context but uh, medical science uh, consider younger than 18 years as children but of course there are additional approaches to look at it uh, infant toddlers and younger children and adolescent so that is secondary but this particular syndrome usually affect uh, 
before the age of 10 years or so. So that's a broader part. As far as vaccination is concerned, like uh, currently in no part of the world, vaccines are recommended for anyone younger than 12 years. Some countries vaccination has been approved for 12 to 17 years in addition to the adult population, but vaccination is uh, not there in those settings. But the risk in the entire group, uh, 0 to 18 years or 0 to less, uh, less than 18 years is uh, really minimal and it follows a U-shaped curve. A U-shaped curve essentially means like very young children are at a little higher risk of severe disease and then uh, as we go towards 16, 17 or 15 higher risk. But essentially what has been seen that a 2 to 15 years has a very little, very little risk of developing moderate to severe disease. Infection, everybody has a similar risk. If uh, we start testing younger children, um, infants, it is likely that they might have virus in the, uh, their nose and throat. It's simply that, uh, they as I repeat, uh, said earlier, that they don't have the right kind of receptor. So the type of receptor which uh, provide entry to the virus to the lungs to cause severe disease right. and which is uh, preventing them from moderate to severe disease. So from what you're saying, it also means then the, you know, the concern about long COVID does not necessarily translate to the segment as well. Well, um, long COVID is possible in all age groups, but considering the majority of cases are in the adult population, so it is a bigger challenge for an adult population. And we also know that uh, because long COVID is dependent upon individuals' so re response to disease. So as the age increase of an affected person, there's a little more likelihood or higher likelihood of developing long COVID and post-COVID. But we need to remember a few things. One is that uh, uh, nearly one-fourth of the total moderate to severe cases will have uh, some symptoms till the four weeks. Then they will be fine. And then it, it is estimated that around one in every 10 would have symptoms till 12 weeks of uh, after recovery or after the infection starts. And then there are, would be a small fraction who might have symptoms beyond 12 weeks uh, of period from the illness. And those, those individuals might have a two types of symptoms in addition to the cough, fever, and uh, lethargy, muscle pain. They have a two types of symptoms depending upon uh, which or part of the body is affected. One is a respiratory symptom in which they can have breathlessness or, or low oxygen saturation, but other symptoms would be other uh, would be depending upon which organ is affected. It could be heart might be affected. It could be uh, kidney. It could be liver. It could be brain. So depending upon those parts, but that proportion is small but uh, really challenge. So both post COVID and long COVID are a challenge. Uh, it's proportionate to the risk, it's proportionate to the population in, uh, which has a moderate to severe disease, but its risk increases with the increasing age. And I think that is something everybody needs to pay attention. Uh, in, the, in the period of COVID-19 pandemic, there is an incentive for every citizen to take care of their health. And if somebody has a comorbidity, such, kind of, such as diabetes or hypertension, it is very pertinent that they uh, manage them really well and that will help them preventing this. There is an incentive for staying healthy in this period. Right, right. I have one more question when it comes to children before I move on to the next subject. And you know, when grown-ups are treated, there's this whole repertoire of medicines and treatment regime and all of that. How are children treated? 
the management of uh, most of the cases with respect to the age group is very similar. So uh, mild cases are, do not require any additional therapy and moderate to severe uh, cases are treated very similarly you know, with respect to age group. Of course, the, uh, the medicines vary. Some of the medications are not recommended for children in India, but there is a standard treatment protocols which need to be followed and which are adhered to and management is very similar. We also know that there are not that many treatments available for COVID-19 which are proven. So we know steroids are required for moderate cases in a particular who are on oxygen saturation and hospitalized. Uh, COVID-19 results in a excessive clotting in individual and that's why the people require anti-clotting or blood or blood thinners as we say in common language. Of course, oxygen required for maintaining the saturation, but others to management are symptomatic or either management of some complications which developed during that period. But COVID per se is a viral condition. There is no not limit, not enough for a proven treatment. So all age groups need to follow standard treatment guidelines and uh, which are suggested in various settings. You mentioned steroids here. Now, uh, the other, uh, you know, the other issue that really came up was what in popular terminology was called black fungus and until you pretty much said there is nothing, you know, you, you for mycosis something. So again, there, can you explain what most of us were, you know, led to believe that this was black fungus or whatever different colors they were giving. What was all that about? And um, some doctors are also saying that there is something more to it. It could, uh, you know, is it to do with the diabetes? Is it to do with um, the virus itself? What What is that that we were seeing among people who are being uh, reporting these conditions? So, mycomycetes is a very common fungi which is found all around us. And this fungi causes... Uh, disease which is very rare before the COVID-19 pandemic. However, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the increasing number of cases of mycomycetes, which was commonly called as a black fungus were reported. Now, black fungus is a very different fungi which does not cause that severe illness. Yet, uh, you know, the number of cases reported in second wave of COVID-19 of mycomycetes resulted that this disease was an epidemic. There are four groups of uh, people who are at increased risk of mycomycetes. One, the people with uncontrolled diabetes mellitus. Second, those who were who had COVID and were treated on steroids for a longer duration. Third group of people are who have a pre-existing health condition which results in immunocompromised status, weak immunity, or those who are on cancer therapy, or any therapy which results in reduced immunity. And fourth group of people are long-term hospitalization. So these are the four groups which were at the higher risk of developing mycomycetes. Though it was a challenge because uh, this condition results in a very high mortality, and the mortality rate is around 50%. However, we also need to remember that it uh, is an important public health challenge, but we, if we look at the numbers, then India reported around two crore infection in the second wave of pandemic, while the number of mycomycetes was around 30,000. So people need not to scare again or panic again that every single case of COVID-19 has a risk of mycomycetes. We need to remember that there are particular subgroups which are at higher risk of mycomycetes and uh, this condition, if identified early, can be managed well. Though it has been challenging, we know that the medicine which is used for mycomycetes, liposomal amphotensin B, was not easily available. It's a long treatment. So better is to prevent yourself, identify your uh, 
identify somebody's risk and then prevent the possibility of micromycetes. We also need to remember that uh, not uh, everyone uh, is risk. I'm, I'm saying this repeatedly, only identified subgroup is risk, a very small proportion is at risk. And as the cases are coming down, it is likely that uh, mucormycetes cases will also go down. Right. So have we turned that corner in, in that sense? So in terms, we are seeing cases overall going down, at least that's what the numbers lead us to believe. So uh, how do you see the way things are going? Although deaths are still, um, you know, we are seeing these revisions in different states and all of that. So how do you read the numbers as it is? And have we turned the corner on, uh, you know, at least for now in the second wave? Okay, going by the current trend in the number of uh, cases and uh, test positivity rate, positivity rate, we can say that uh, we are coming out of the second wave of pandemic. However, we need to remember that uh, the number of daily cases which are currently being reported are far higher than what India achieved on early, in early February as a low baseline of around 8,000 cases. Now, in this wave, even if we come out, it seems like India is going to have a higher baseline and it will take a few more uh, weeks and even longer to come back to the previous uh, level of uh, number of daily cases. So that's uh, one part. But going back to mycomycetes or those kind of crises, I would say that uh, our response has always been very knee-jerk or reactive. What should have been, like, first of all, we need to ask and the government need to ask and the health policymaker need to ask themselves that why a rare disease become epidemic in a country like India? What has fundamentally gone wrong? And it would not be enough that only cases are managed. The lesson should be learned. A detailed analysis should be done that why those that situation arose. Why mycomycetes did not uh, was not reported from any other part of the world in that frequency? While the fungi is so ubiquitous, uh, and what India can learn and what should be done to prevent the future secondary infections? It's not about mycomycetes, but mycomycetes is a tip of what happens in health facilities when treating other health conditions. So uh, the lessons try to be much broader and uh, uh, system standing rather than looking at a single problem. Uh, as a challenge. What would you suggest, Doctor? I mean, various things were being said at that time from the oxygen uh, being used to overuse of steroids. What would you suggest? There should be a detailed epidemiological analysis of what caused mycomycety cases in the country. And the, okay. All the possible reasons, including oxygen supply, industrial oxygen supply, excessive use of steroids, uh, unclean. Uh, gas cylinders or zinc or any other hypothesis need to be explored fully. Second, the, in the hospital setup, so the infection prevention and control measures should be uh, strengthened. Third, we need to look at the long-term approaches that why in Indian facilities, Indian healthcare facilities, there are so many secondary infections with high mortality rate. And these vary from one facility to another facility. One of the ICMR, Indian Council of Medical Research Study found the rate of secondary infection in some of the facilities range from 1.5% to 17%. If there is such a high variation in secondary infection or complication uh, in the patient uh, admitted for different conditions, then it requires a detailed examination and a more systemic uh, efforts and initiative should be done. Of course, this requires a detailed study rather than a prescriptive answer from anyone, but that kind of detailed analysis should be done and corrective action should be planned. And there is enough expertise in the country to uh, support that process. 
you have given a timeline of November, possibly when we could see another surge or what we call the third wave. So looking at the way Delhi is coming out, Mumbai and people are going around without masks and things like that. Um, and there is vaccination happening. What, what would you suggest at this stage? Uh, is there any remote chance that this will be averted or is it inevitable? Well, we and no one can be very sure when that when a subsequent wave would happen. Especially in the country of size of India, some of the states can still have a smaller waves well before November. But epidemiologically speaking, there is a possibility that by the time November 2021, there could be a susceptible pool of population. And this is based upon simple assumption that uh, while immunity after vaccination or uh, last for six to nine months and some population and even after natural infection the immunity wanes up, uh, reportedly wanes and we need to still understand so by the time uh, november there will be six to nine months and the people might be a little, little relaxed and also festive season and then immunity might wane off which has been developed so there is a possibility that around that time or afterward there could be another wave however that's not definitive if uh, vaccination can be ramped up if there is some better understanding of the disease and uh, if immunity lasts longer, this could be delayed to early 2022. We also cannot predict that what will be the scale of the wave. It, it depends upon many other factors. And one of the factors is how and when a new variant can emerge and what will be effect of new variant on health conditions. So all of those are going to determine the subsequent wave. But one thing remains, as long as there are susceptible population groups, there is a risk of increase in the cases in a various subpopulation and that would be termed wave to call it a wave cases need to go upward and that's all like if a particular number of cases a baseline cases in a particular setup is 20,000 and if it increases over a short period and goes up to 30,000 it is a wave like if we can recall that many of the countries in Europe the first wave was really very small and the second wave was more ferocious so not as big as India but uh, their population size is also small. So any rise in the cases or increase the speed of transmission is considered wave. And we can foresee such waves till uh, there, is, there are susceptible population groups. Uh, if secondly, that whether it happens in November or early next year, uh, we, we would not be able to predict uh, the extent. We would not be able to predict the, uh, the challenge, uh, like uh, the time. But uh, yeah, there would be wave, that is for sure. Right, right. That is worrying. But like you're saying, keep the masks on and get as many people vaccinated. And thank you so much for your time, uh, Doctor, and for your uh, insight from both the business line team and myself. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.